What is up and welcome into episode 36 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com and my co-host who will be joining us shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, we're going to get to a bunch of your questions as always. We will also talk about bass drum microphones and mine and Mike's preferred mics. We'll talk about featured artist Abe Cunningham and in our gear review section, Mike will check out some new snare drums from Canopus. So let's get to it. Well, good morning, my friend. Good afternoon, I should say. Yeah, and you know it's winter again. Like we went back what? in time. Yeah, it was like twenty nine degrees last night. What in the wide wide world of sports <laughs> is going on over there? I tell you, April man, you get all four seasons in one month. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's you know what really sucks though is is any time you have like somewhat cold weather when it should be warm. All of the crackpots come out and they're like, see, global warming is not real. <laughs> yeah. It's so cold today. And it's like, all right, slow down. It's do your research. It's not, <laughs> not what it means. It doesn't mean that like the world just gets hot. Oh, man. So any gigs last week? Gosh, what did I do? I did. Uh, yeah, I had a couple. I had like a, a jam session thing, which is fun. I'm just the host drummer. So I get to play oh, cool. whatever random stuff people want to play. Oh, it's that's awesome. But, you know, the worst part was I threw my back out earlier that oh day. no so i had to deal with uh you know trying to uh, through your back out that sounds like such an old man thing to do i know it's terrible <laughs> and it, i did it while picking up my dog to put him in the freaking bathtub <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> i can totally see you just being like oh oh it locked up bad so i had like a heating oh. pad on it all day and did you just take the dog's place and just slip yourself into the bathtub uh, it didn't it, it was like a slow creeper it took like two oh. hours and all of a sudden i'm like oh i can't move something seriously oh. wrong that's rough man yeah they had a gig that night so i had to like tiptoe into the club and take one piece of my kid in at a time you know <laughs> it was it was pretty gnarly wow i'm still still nursing it i mean it's it's hell but, i'm yeah. sorry you went through that man yeah i'm not even sure how to prevent it i mean i don't think i did anything super wrong i, don't, I just old man do you do any lower back exercises do you do any core work throughout I, yeah the week? i do a lot of planks okay and all kinds okay. of stuff nice nice Pl- look at you maybe i'm doing planks wrong i don't know no I, <laughs> planks are pretty easy stay flat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hold it as long as you can uh you know plank, planks are, are somewhat self-explanatory well that's good man that's good i've just uh i've got a camps starting this saturday oh so, right so what is the yeah. first one uh first one is intermediate camp starts on saturday well orientation is on saturday we've got um uh, mostly americans a couple canadians and i think two people from the uk coming in for this one awesome uh so it should be a lot of fun and it's uh it's very different this year, uh, so I don't want to. It sucks because I want to tell you about what we're doing in camps, but there's a lot of campers that listen to this podcast, yeah, and then yeah. they'd be able to prepare for it. So I can just tell everyone out there that every year I try to reinvent the camps because we have so many return campers. So it's it's not like I have I have to write new books every year. It's not the same curriculum. Obviously, I have the core fundamentals that I like to teach, but I still have to dress them up in new ways so the people that have been here three or four or five years in a row still have something to do this is this will be we've done like 65 camps now so this will be like our 66th camp wow so they're all week long so yeah so they start on saturday and uh should be good stuff man i'm I'm really excited how do you define intermediate that's a tough thing uh i can tell you this the rest of the world doesn't define it the same way i do yeah is it more advanced than than most it's much more advanced than what the campers think and and to me it's just like i I just kind of lucked out you know i grew up 
in a city. I mean, Sacramento is a small town, but we have some really good drummers here, and we have great drum instructors. And most of the drummers here kind of grow up very similar as far as private drum lessons, and then they do school music, and they can all read. And so, yeah. so intermediate to me is is very intermediate. It, it means that your fills are in time. It means that your fills show up in the proper phrasing in the right bar, that they don't just show up on some random seventh bar of a phrase. Yeah. Uh, it means that your grooves have dynamics. So if we're going to play the same groove and it's a basic rock beat, well, at an intermediate level, I want some ghost notes in there. I want the I want to be able to tell you, like, hey, can you give me a little bit of a quarter note push on that hi-hat? And I want them to be able to accent the quarter notes inside the eighth notes. So you're, um, you're looking at, like, four or five years of playing experience probably at least yeah and that's the problem is we get a lot of guys that have 30 years of playing experience but they've never practiced uh. they just started gigging and 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 to them they're like dude i i do five gigs a month and i've been doing it since i was 15 and it's like i know but no one's ever sat you down and asked you to keep time with your left foot yeah. ever you know and 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 no one has either recognized or had the heart to tell you, hey, you change your bass drum pattern slightly every single bar. You're, you're technically playing a solo on your bass drum. Uh. And your bass player, when you get home from this camp, will really appreciate the fact that you've now committed to whatever you started with. You committed to it, and it became something consistent that the musicians around you could feed off of. So the other thing that we're doing different in this camp, which I don't mind telling people, is that I had Dave McKay, the piano player that does all of our playlongs and he plays with jp bouvet right i had dave mckay write a full set of tracks and loops and bass lines for this camp so every night uh when we get to our fourth stage which will be the musical application stage that's when i have bass loops that dave wrote and i have uh four bar phrases with ensemble hits on the fourth bar that they're gonna have to fill and accent nice uh, yeah, a lot of cool stuff where it's like, okay, let's now that we spend an entire day building up your drum set skills, let's let's see if all of that matters when it comes to just doing what, what really matters: grooving and locking and, and complimenting the musicians around you. So, so that starts on Saturday, and uh, pretty much I've spent about ten hours a day working on content for the new site. So almost all of the courses are finished now, which is really cool. So every category on the new website will have. If let's say that you're on the grooves course, it'll have beginner, intermediate, advanced, and pro. And then pro is pretty much the level of like, hey, here's the stuff that I'm working on right now. Yeah. I'm, you know, uh, a working drum set clinician, so this is what I consider to be a pro level of this stuff. Um, wow, that's you know, a lot of content, man. It is. Each course is six videos long, and then we have six categories. We have hand speed, foot speed, rudiments and technique grooves fills and independence and then so those are the categories and then each category has a minimum of four courses inside it and each course is six videos so i filmed a couple hundred videos over the last six months and they're all multi-camera angled super hd and they're actually and they're actually in 1080p so uh so you can watch them on your tv no matter how big your flat screen is so nice Wow. Yeah, buddy. So that's what's going on here. I haven't slept in a while. Do you, but, ever, uh, you ever hit a wall where you're like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Or do you just have to push <laughs> through it? Uh, well, I have an Amber. So, okay. yeah, when I'm, when I'm done, she, she'll, she'll, she literally will make incentives. Like, you know, we have, a, <laughs> we have a very odd financial structure at home, which it really boils down to the fact that our business doesn't affect my personal finances ever so if our business is exploding i don't get any more money and if our business is suffering i don't lose any money i have a very fixed thing okay. because i can't i can't let the success of our business influence 
me as an educator. And that happened about four or five years ago. We started selling a lot of fill lessons and I geared everything towards fills uh, because it made me more personal money. Yeah. Then those people came to camp and they couldn't groove. They couldn't stay in time. They could just play some really stupid fills. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so Amber and I made the decision, okay, put me on an allowance, uh, you know, like a regular job and this, and I've been on the same allowance for four and a half years now. So, so yeah, so Amber will give me incentives like, okay, if you get two courses done this week, you know, you get fifty dollars, <laughs> like, it, it, but it's like fifty dollars it. that we don't have to talk about. There's no, yeah, yeah. there's no marital fight. It's just like this is my fifty dollars, and I'm going to blow it on whatever the hell I, I want. Ten Jamba juices, and I want them now. <laughs> and I'm getting every boost. So, uh, so it. yeah, it's it's way different than what the public perception of my life is. I love know? that you were so. creating fill monsters too. Oh, I didn't know about it until the camps, and I was like, wow, you guys sound like walking YouTube videos. This is terrible. Your bandmates must hate you, and they must be blaming me. This can't be good. So, yeah, so then once we got that situation kind of handled, then it was like every video I made was for the sake of the student and the long-term growth of the student and education, and I don't know if it sells well or not. So. That's kind of the plan. So anyways, well, enough about us. Let's get to some listener questions. I'm sure we have a few. Yeah, let's blow through a few of them. A couple of these have been here for eh, not too long, but a couple of weeks. So I'm going to try to get through a bunch of them. Boom. Um, first one comes from Sebastian Leclerc. He's a French-Canadian drummer. He's 39 years old. He plays left-handed, and he wants to know if we think it would be a good idea for him to switch sides and explore being a right-handed drummer for independence. Uh, that's basically it. That's his question. Well, I definitely think being a left-handed drummer on a right-handed drum set is uh, is a huge, huge advantage. And I think you and I have talked about that, that yeah. playing open-handed is a massive advantage. So, Sebastian, hopefully you're playing left. I would suggest playing left-handed on a right-handed kit, and that is an advantage. Now, the same thing for you, I would suggest to all of my students that are right-handed, which is there's nothing wrong with playing two or three songs a night with your less dominant hand as the dominant hand, just so it gets more work. If you think about a basic 16th note groove, uh, right hand lead, 1E and a 2E and a 3E and a 4E and a... My hand that is dominant, that is good, just got 16 hits worth of work per measure. And my hand that needs all the work only got two hits per measure. Yep. So it it's kind of one of those things where I use uh, Tom Petty's Running Down a Dream and I use Deftones' My Own Summer and I play those songs almost every other day, left hand lead, just so that my left hand can get the same amount of use as my right hand does. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I have no disagreements. We're not going to disagree on these these questions. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll find something later. We'll find something later. I mean, I had a. It was like the first time I met Dom Famularo. He was he was asking me like, "What books have you done?" And I was a teenager. I was probably like right. nineteen ninety four. It's like you know, okay. I just finished. Uh, I just finished Advanced Syncopation for the Modern Drummer, the Jim Chapin book. And yeah. He goes, oh, you finished it, huh? I'm like, yeah, I got finished. He's like, can you do it left-handed? I'm like, uh, no. He's like, well, then you haven't finished it yet. So, oh, wow. And that was – No, was, wait. I was like Do you 15. mean Advanced Techniques for the yeah, Modern Yeah, yeah, that's it. Advanced okay. Techniques for – yeah, the, the I was like, wait, did Chapin come out with a book that I don't know about? <laughs> no, we no, got to – Wait, so, so Dom wanted you to play the ride with the left hand and then do all the comping between the right hand and the bass drum. Yeah, so take the you know Ooh. do the whole book normal right-handed lead with the right hand on the yep. ride, and then just do the whole book again, Flip switching it. your hand. So put the ride symbol on the left side, 
<laughs> Dude, I mean, that's and I think that's a good point for us to discuss at some point later is when can you walk away from something? Because obviously, if somebody said, have you done Future Sounds left hand lead? It's like, I don't have enough years left in my life to do that. So I think the main thing is everything you do has to be focused around what you wish was better. If you wish your, you know, your non-dominant hand was better, then practice it. Yeah. But if you, you know, I don't think Steve Jordan is spending a lot of time playing at you know twenty left-hand lead books and songs because he probably feels good with it. Yeah. So I think it just is. It's all dependent on what you want to get better at. But that would be a good place to start, buddy. All right, let's move on. Next one is from Sam Harriman. Um, he says we mentioned something on a previous show about how we both agreed that you should muffle the snare more than you think for recording. Yeah, um, and he wants to know if we have any any other tricks or observations for recording that makes the you know just makes it better, makes the drums sound better. Well, that's I think you'll you can definitely get deep on this one, but better is a rough word to use when it comes to recording because it's all situational. Some of the worst drum sounds you could possibly get would be fantastic drum sounds in the proper setting. I think about uh, Matt Chamberlain on the first Critters Bugger. Critters Buggin' record, and you know I would never want those drum tones, except for in that situation. Those are the perfect drum tones, and you know sometimes you have distortion on the snare. Well, that's horrible until you're in the situation that deserves it. So better is kind of a situational thing. I, I definitely think one thing that should be experimented with the most besides muffling would be the miking technique and how high and low your room mics are, and whether you're able to switch them from omni to cardioid and, and things like that. But what about you, buddy? Well, just sticking with the snare drum, um, what I've kind of learned is, in general, you need to tune lower than you think to get the snare drum to sound full on recording. Like a really mm -hmm. tight kind of you know snare that feels good. When you put a mic on it, it's going to sound like a tin can. Yeah. Um, so, so, but if you really need that tight sound, my suggestion is think about adding some reverb to kind of give it a little bit of. The reverb will help make it not sound so small. It'll make it sound bigger. And also move the microphone higher from the drum so you're getting mm. more air, more space. Uh, that seems to work well for me. And, and then the opposite. If you want that really low, fat sound, you know, tune the drum super low, put a bunch of muffling on it. You can get the mic a lot closer because you can use what's called the proximity effect, which means the closer the mic is, the more the low end is enhanced. So get that closer to the drum, maybe even flatten the mic out more so it's not aimed right at the head at the it's more edge. flat yeah so that's those are the two big tricks um loosen the wires usually if you're going for the fat sound you tighten the wires if you want the tight sound with the reverb loosen the wires probably a lot more than you think like they should rattle pretty good that way the whole drum is kind of you're getting as much fullness from the, uh, the drum as possible um, because the wires aren't restricting it so yeah, that's it's tough to record a really tight snare to make it not sound like a like a balloon popping or something. Sure, and that's basically it. I mean, try detuning one or two lugs, like get it medium sound that you like, and then detune one or two lugs, and it'll it'll fatten it up and also shorten the uh, the sustain. I mean, really, just listening to what you've said and all things that I think we've all tried, it really comes down to just try some stuff out, man. Yeah, you know, uh, test it, and and the the result the the result is more important than the process. So whatever got you that result, it's like who cares how it got done? At least it got done. That's really all that matters. I do have one quick question on miking snares. 
As far as the depth of the microphone going into the drum, how far past, say, the, the rim is your mic going into the head? Or is it right at the rim? If you have like a say an SM57, yeah, it's 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 right at the rim. Uh, okay, I would only so it's not like two in. or three inches in. No, I, I I've never. I'm just afraid I'm going to whack it. So I yeah, try to keep too. it right at the rim. I've had good results for like a deeper sound because when you get bring it in, it it gives you more like punch, a little bit more attack. Okay. But I, in general, I actually have one of those. Uh, it's like a gooseneck mic clamp that hooks to the snare stand itself. Yeah, that's yeah. So it's oh, just, to the stand? Yeah, not to the rim. No, oh, okay. to the stand. So it puts it in one spot, no matter what, and that's, <laughs> that's where you get it. It's right where it needs to be. So that I think that's, that's awesome. by Big Bang distri- Distribution. It's called Mike. Okay, I think it's called Mike Clips or something like that. Okay, super cool. Cool. Uh, I was going to say something else. Oh, I consider uh, all this experimentation as part of my practice routine. So that's that's one. That's a big tip. Is is you can consider this stuff practice. Like go. Like if you like the way that Al Green's snare drums, you know the snare drum sounds on an Al Green record, go into your drum room and, and practice until you get your snare to sound just like it. Awesome, that's the biggest that's tip for me. That's great, fantastic. All right, the number three. Uh, this is, comes from Josh Hartwell. He is trying to get his double chops together on the bass drum, so he wants to know if we have any suggestions for breaking through a wall, a technique wall. Well, I think one thing that needs to happen when it comes to any technique, whether it be bass drum or hands or anything, is repetition is what will allow your brain to figure out the motor function and do it better. So, Josh, what you want to figure out for yourself is what is actually slowing you down. There's only two possible options here. It's either your pattern speed or your raw speed. Your pattern speed is your brain's ability to remember the pattern and to execute it through your muscles. So if you're playing something like a paradiddle diddle with your feet, you're going to be much slower at that than you would say singles because your brain doesn't have to do a lot of work to go right, left, right, left. But for your brain to remember right, left, right, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, left, that actually takes quite a bit of of your brain's ability. So that's called pattern speed. So the first thing I would think is, is it the pattern that's screwing you up or is it the actual raw speed? Raw speed is where you're having no trouble whatsoever remembering what to do. You're not concentrating on rights or lefts. You just physically can't go any faster. So let's just assume for now, since you mentioned doubles, that it's actually the raw speed that's slowing you down. It's probably not the pattern. The best way to build that pattern speed is to do it just like you were trying to build up your endurance for something else. Do some sprints for maybe 30 seconds, then slow it back down to about 60% of your max and let your muscles get the oxygen they need and then push them again for another 30 seconds and then slow down for a minute of 60. And the, the longer that you stay at those kind of 60 to 70% ranges, that will really allow your brain to figure out the best technique for your body. And all of a sudden, you'll start to develop your own techniques. And the other thing I would say is explore the techniques that exist, but don't obsess over them. So find out why does Dave Weckl move his foot side to side when he does his doubles? Why do I skip up the pedal? Why does Jojo Mayer use the heel toe? But don't obsess over those. Just know that they exist and know that your foot will eventually figure out one of them. And one day you'll look down and you'll you'll kind of recognize, oh, check out my technique. What about, I mean, did you, did you ever work on double bass? Yeah, I did. In I, I've, I felt like I shouldn't even comment because I just don't do a lot of doubles. But um, I always kind of used like I, I wanted my feet to just be able to play whatever they wanted. So I just practiced right. stick control with my feet. There I, you go. I figured if I had independence with my feet, then that was a bigger hindrance than the actual chops. 
if I didn't have the independence to play what I wanted with my feet, then that was the problem. I, I don't play double bass at 200 BPM ever. But I do it like 16th note little things here and there. Sure. And for me, sure. it was just a coordination. If I can't get my feet to do it while my hands are playing something. So I play like a basic groove with the hands and then just run through stick control. Right, and that's the pattern speed stuff, you know, being able to recognize the pattern and execute it. And you'll find that independence hiccup that happens where you're going, you know, right, left, 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 right, left, kick, kick, kick. And you're like, oh, man, i got to slow that down. And then eventually right, left, left, left with your feet just becomes natural. And then you switch to right, left, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, while as 16th. And, and yeah, I think it's just a great workout for you. But, Josh, probably the best advice would be however you got your hands so fast, do the same for your feet. Right. All right, let's try to get one more in. So this is from Dan. He wants to know, what do we think is the advantages or disadvantages of using a ported versus a non-ported bass drum head? Ah, go ahead, buddy. Um, I think it depends on whether you're going to be using microphones or not, if you're going to be recording or not, and if you're going to be playing a lot of notes or not. So if if you're using microphones, you need a port. Um, I... I trust me, I've tried to get the John Bonham sound a bazillion times and inevitably I just it's way more hassle. Whereas I can still tune the drum open and boomy and just get a mic inside to get a little bit of the attack that I need. So yeah. if you're using microphones, ported all the way. Um if you're what was the word I think I say? I said microphone recording, same thing. Recording a bass drum with no hole and maybe you want you try to put a mic on the batter head all of a sudden you're going to have phasing problems and it's it's again it's just a drag yeah uh, i've i have had luck with like a little uh 20 inch bass drum with like coated ambassador heads and just one mic in the front but that's when i'm going for like a motown sound or something like that where it's just totally. all boom there's no attack uh and the other thing if you're playing a lot of notes i think you need to let the air out so it doesn't just become a wall of rumble with a with a double set double headed bass drum so yeah it, i think it, it all favors to have a port in your bass drum head yeah i don't think i mean unless you're playing an 18 inch bop kit that you're playing as an actual bop kit it, it doesn't you don't get enough out of it like i love if you're not miking at all i love not having a, a ported bass drum because it's just fun to let the bass drum do its thing yeah. you know and and i kind of put my mindset into that keith carlock world where each bass drum note is really special and it goes bow and you right. let it do its thing but unless you're going for something ex- extremely stream extremely extreme yeah <laughs> extremely extreme uh then i i think it's, <laughs> that's not redundant at all extremely extreme um the extremities of the extremely extremeness is just something you you don't need to go for anyways i think even like like michael saying i mean you could go with the like three to four inch bass drum hole if you use the hole cutter by holes and that way you can still get a microphone in there but there's plenty of bass drum left to do its thing the one thing that i would like you know to talk about in the in the future would be kind of where we put that hole and just maybe do some a b testing i I have a few front bass drum heads that i could do it with but i don't like getting the hole way too close to the edge because and i feel like i'm really i mean there's no head over there to to resonate whatsoever so i do i do come into the side probably about two to three inches so there's still some head left out on the side there what about you yeah i yeah it's probably i just go with whatever is standard kind of positioning upper right 
quadrant sort of. Um, right. You know, actually thinking about this question now, I did because I was literally trying to do a John Bonham sound for a track like two weeks ago and okay. it just sounded like crap. So I did email my friend Jeff Kelly at the Kelly Shoe because he makes oh, yeah, that, of course. that internal yeah. mic mount thing. So I was considering, like, I want to just mount a, a mic inside this bass drum and use double heads and have it be my John Bonham drum. So I just emailed him, like, how do I, what do I do with the cable? Like, how am I going to get the cable out of the drum? Okay. And, and I didn't want to drill a hole. I didn't want to have to buy a special adapter to run it through the, the air vent. So he actually had a great suggestion. He said cut, like, a one-inch hole near the edge of the bottom of the resonant head, big enough okay. to where the mic cable can feed through it, but it's not going to affect the resonance of the head. And if you use any oh, kind wow. of dampening, like a towel or something, you, that'll just sit right over top of that hole anyway. So that's oh, a way yeah, to you sure. can you can get a microphone inside the drum and still use the solid head, you know, a pretty much a solid head. A one inch hole is not going to really affect the resonance at all. No, not at least not on a bass drum. It, it yeah. would on on a smaller drum. But well, that's awesome. Yeah, I th- and but it's it's so funny. Like almost every answer we give still comes down to tinkering like yeah. just try some stuff out yeah. you know and and I, I think that that's such a rite of passage as a drummer is looking at your drum set and this must happen in almost like the automotive industry and the bicycle industry but when you own something it's so special to you and it's so sacred and these mystery elves built this thing <laughs> right. and then one day you look at it and you go like wait this drum set was built by men and women just like me like i can take these heads off i can touch the bearing edge i can unscrew the lugs and once you just kind of make that rite of passage of like you know what i'm gonna screw around with my drum set yeah don't take that the wrong way i'm gonna (laughs) tinker with my drum set then like it just becomes so different you know and i was thinking about that yesterday when i was i was driving and i was thinking you know this car was built by like dudes yeah they just put it together so i don't have to be so scared to like unscrew this or unscrew that um, so I just, yeah, I, I, I took the battery pack out of my car and, you know. And <laughs> no, reset <I'm> <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah, so I just started, I just got out my drill and started. But no, I mean, same thing with a bicycle. I used to work in a bike shop when I was a kid and people, I mean, the derailleur of a multi-geared bicycle was like black magic to them. Yeah. They're like, I don't know what to do. My bike's not shifting. And I'm like, well, just just fine-tune your derailleur. And they're like, well, I don't know what that thing does and I'm not touching it. Yeah. I'm like, it moves your chain to the chain ring. Like, never mind. I'll do it for you. But anyway, so I think when you get to that point with the drum set and you, you realize like, okay, so I screwed up my 10-inch head. It's, it's going to be another 15 bucks. That yeah. sucks, but at least I know what I like and what I don't like. Yeah. I mean, I did that for a long time when I was younger. No endorsements. My 10 was my smallest drum at the time. So I would buy like five different heads from Remo, five different heads from Aquarian, five different heads from Evans. And just try out different ten inch heads on my tom until I found my home. Yeah. You know? So so there's nothing wrong with trying stuff out. Awesome. Well hopefully uh that gives you guys some stuff to work on and we will get to way more of your questions next week. But for now we're gonna move into some shop talk. We're gonna talk about bass drum microphones. Mike and I use different bass drum microphones, but there are some industry standards, which we can cover a little bit. But there's also some bass drum microphones that aren't so industry standard that I wanted to talk about as well. Now, right now, what do you have as your go-to kick mic setup? Uh, if I'm just using one mic, it would be the Shure Beta 52. Okay. Because you can and get that inside, outside. It's just a good sounding bass drum mic. And that's about $199 on an online retailer, right? Yeah, pretty standard fare. Very durable, so you don't have to worry about it getting beat up or anything like that. And it's not overly pre-EQ'd like the Audix D6 is, so 
it gives you a pretty natural sound without it being, I mean, it, it gives you a bass drum sound, but it's a pretty true bass drum sound. Right. So that would be yeah. my first choice. And if I have a combo of mics, I use the Beta 91A, which is, I've mentioned it several times. It's the one that looks like a little pyramid. Yeah. That goes mic. inside the drum to get all the attack. And then I use the AKG oh. D12 VR on the outside, which is like a vintage style mic. Yep. On the outside. Or I'll use like a Shure KSM32 large diaphragm okay. condenser. That's the one that I was looking for. I So Shure. Say it again, KSM? 32. That's like their standard that, large diaphragm condenser. Got it. Okay, so you put that, what, uh, in front of the kick? Yeah. If I'm going, the the the, the uh, D12 VR kind of has replaced that in almost every situation, but if I'm not getting got enough it. of, like, the papery resonance that I want, like enough space, yep. I'll try the, uh, the Shure. Okay. So, um, let's see here. Okay, so that sure is it's that's a nice condenser mic. That's a five hundred and fifty dollar condenser mic. Yeah, but those are as good as anything else, like two thousand dollar condensers. It might really, opinion. yeah, they're, okay. they're great. A pair of those would be good for anyone's collection. And then with that, do you then still use the ninety one inside to get the attack? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's not just a standalone kick mic for you. That's always used as a combo platter. Yeah, that would be always the to get the extra low end and, and the space from the front. And and sometimes the the ninety one A is a little too clicky. I'll put the B fifty two inside the drum. Okay, got it. Very cool. Very cool. And then as far as if you're only using one, let's say that you're using the the Shure Beta fifty two, are you generally inside the kick? Are you on the hole? Are you outside the hole? Inside, almost. Always, unless it's—I mean, if it's a jazz drum, I can't get inside. Obviously, the drum. it's sure. in the front. But yeah, it's—it's it's inside. I think it, it. There's way too many variables if it gets outside the drum that I don't want to deal with. And then, what about as far as when you're in the drum? Where are you as far as where's the microphone pointed towards the beater? Is it like in the middle of the drum, or is it still actually where your porthole is? So is it kind of to the side of the drum? Uh, it's usually around where the spur mount is, so okay. that's probably like a third in. And okay, that's the depth, and then like how much as far as the center of the drum? Just straight uh, in, like where the right where the hole in the the head is. So probably okay. four inches in from the edge, just straight in. Right. I mean, with the with the Beta ninety one A, it's flat, so it just sits. Of in course, the, in the center yeah, yeah. Of the I'm just talking about the fifty two. Okay, yeah. so it'd be inside, cool. all the way in the hole, either halfway in or like a third in, like right yep. where the spur mount is. Usually yeah. just pointing right at the batter head. I don't usually angle it at the beater spot. Okay. Usually just straight you. in. Okay, awesome. Very cool, very cool. And you're using what? Um, I kind of go back and forth. So if it's for my students, and this is uh, always a tough thing when I get endorsements is I have to let my endorsements know, like, hey, just this is going to sting a little bit, but I'm always going to be honest with my students. They are they are my top endorsement. So yeah. uh, so. And most, and if a company can't handle that, then I don't want to be endorsed by them. So, even though I'm endorsed by Audio Technica for my students, it's the Audix D6, mainly because most of my students are trying to record just to capture it. They're like, "Hey, can I just put some mics on my kit and get a sound?" And I think the Audix D6 is the least amount of hassle. If you don't know what you're doing, if you're not obsessed with tone, and you just wish your bass drum sounded like a bass drum, the Audix D6. And then as you get more into, like, I wish I had a little more freedom. Then I think the Shure Beta 52. And then the one that I'm using is the Audio-Technica ATM 250. Same price range. I have the 250DE, which is the dual element one, where it's actually got two lines coming out of it. Yeah. So it's trying to be the Pyramid and the Beta 52 at the same time, or yeah. the D112. 
and honestly, I, I wasn't I wasn't competent enough to mix it. I tried, I just couldn't get it to sound good, and I, I literally told Audio Technica like, "Hey, I'm gonna. This is a very expensive microphone. I'm gonna send it back to you guys because I'm not ready for it." And and I've had a, a couple engineers that love that mic, but I, I'm just not a good enough mixer. So the ATM250. I would say out of if you go Audix D12, and these are all in the exact same price range. Audix D12, the most pre-EQ'd. You put it in, it sounds like a thumpy, thwacky bass drum. D6, D6. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Audix D6. I was thinking of the AKG D12. Yeah. Um, then Beta 52 is going to give you a little more freedom, but you still get a, a decent pre-EQ'd sound. And then when you get to the ATM, the Audio Technica ATM 250, that's like. Unfortunately, that's what your bass drum actually sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> and it's 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 revealing. It's kind of the same thing we talked about with the in ears, where it's like, wait, is that what my drums really sound like? <laughs> yeah. So with the ATM ATM two fifty, uh, it is actually a little bit cheaper. It's one seventy nine, but you really do need to mix it. You need to know what you're doing with that microphone. And then I would say that this the same thing, and probably you can attest to this. I think it's the exact same thing, but a totally different sound with the uh, AKG D112. That's most people see that microphone because it's so famous for the green ribbon in front, and they just think like, "Oh, that's the bass drum microphone. I'll go buy it." And then it goes, hum, yeah, hum. and they're just they freak out. So they're like, "This sounds horrible." And it's like, "Well, it, you you need to know how to mix a D12. It's it doesn't come just pre EQ'd for you." Yeah, that's the D112. D112. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. So that one. Yeah, I mean, bass drums have so much low mid-frequency crap. There's always just a cloud <laughs> of just muck. So you, general, like 250 hertz, you can almost get rid of all of it. That's that 250, 350, that's, that's, that's the, the cut. That's where it's just like, let's wolf. It's just terrible. Yeah. So all, I think the D, the Audix kind of has that scooped out already. And the Beta 91A has a switch on the bottom where you can scoop it out automatically. Okay. Uh, the Beta 52 isn't scooped as much, so that's kind of like the, the D112 or the one you're using where you have to – it gives you a pretty flat response, so you have to kind of – you know how to know how to mix it. Because sometimes you yeah. want that to those low-mid frequencies. But in general, in most pop and, and contemporary sound, it, it's it's just gone. It should just be out of there. Yeah, no, I think – I mean the, the Audix D6 – I, I would say just has kind of the flying V tone. Uh, yeah. They boost the lows, they scoop the mids, and they boost the highs. So you get the attack, the thump, and you don't have all the kind of tennis ball, tennis racket thing. But, yeah, so I think with any of this stuff, you can get a great sound. It's just how much how much honesty do you want and how much flexibility do you want. So the good thing is for a great bass drum microphone, you're not looking at more than $200. Yeah. You know, you can – because honestly – most of you guys out there don't need to go full on studio with this stuff and have three mics on your kick and a bottom snare mic and four room mics. So if if I was doing YouTube videos right now and I was just starting out and I was just trying to share my stuff on Facebook and Instagram, I would honestly go with one of these $200 mics, either the ATM250 by Audio-Technica, the Audix D6 or the Shure Beta 52. That would be $200 and I'd get a nice – 150 to 300 dollar overhead and that would be my mic setup yeah i mean, I mean and you should live with that until you can get it to sound good too i think that's we instantly dude, rushed to, i need 16 channels i need to have my my setup so look silly. like abbey road but <laughs> i mean if you can't do two mics then how are you going to do four how are you going to do five i can tell you right now i'm still struggling to get my full mic setup to sound better than a two mic setup yeah and there there's still times where i literally start to think you know what Maybe it's time to go public with just the two mic setup. And I'm not kidding. Like I do battle. I mean, I'm sure you do this too, but I will spend an entire 
twelve hour period of time in here tweaking sounds. Yeah. That and and I've been in this room for six years. Yeah. And I just my ears all of a sudden freak out on me, and then I then I I strip it down to kick an overhead, and I'm like, well, that sounds pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to mix anything. Like the toms are all even, the snares all even. You know, you are missing the the actual kind of the low end and that immediate nature of the drum. But at the same time, my thing as a teacher is I just want you to feel like you're in the room with me. I don't want I don't want you to hear me speak and you can kind of hear the drums resonating as I'm talking and then I step on my pedal to kill my lav mic and then it's just like dead silence. Yeah, Everything's yeah. gated. Like I hate that. Like yeah. yeah, it's like this weird separation and I don't feel like I have any connection to the educator anymore. And I, I like when the guy's just kind of talking and then he starts playing and it's just seamless. Yep. You know, that that's my favorite style of education. So uh, I, I try to go for that as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to experiment now with some of the some of the overheads that I have, some of the large diaphragm condensers that I have and try kind of what you're doing with the KSM 32. I'll try that out with uh, some of my audio technica stuff and see what kind of results we can get. We should definitely, you know, what would be really cool for the listeners is if you and I just kind of picked our favorite two mic setup and recorded our drum sets and then just you showed yours and I showed mine and we just talked about what our two mic setup was. We should do that. Cause I was going to suggest you should grab whatever your favorite pair of, of condensers is do one overhead uh-huh. and then measure that same distance from the snare drum and put the one in front of the bass drum. Okay. And just do that and I'll do it as well. We'll, we'll see what okay. we get. No bass drum mic? So you're you'll have one overhead that's over the snare, like over the yeah, center yeah. of the kit. Yeah. Measure that distance to the snare head and then and an equal distance in front of the kick. And and then make that same distance and put it in front of the kick. Right. So that'll so be just sort a, of like a bass drum mic, but it'll be it'll be a foot or so in front probably. Let's do it. Let's right. do that for the ne- for the next episode. I'll use the KSM 32s. Okay, I'll use the uh, Audio Technica AT47 MPs. Um, <laughs> these these numbers are so silly, dude. <laughs> MP. <laughs> what does that mean? More possumness. I don't know. <laughs> I, all I know is it's the microphone on Jimmy Fallon's desk. That's how Audio Technica sold it to me. They were like, well, we're going to send you some ATM-47s. And I was like, cool, man. They're like, well, you might have seen it on Jimmy Fallon's desk. And I was like, oh, the mic that's not plugged in? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> He's wearing a lav mic, and they've got like a, a shotgun mic above his head. But yeah. But uh, yeah, okay, cool. We'll do that, and we'll, uh, we'll give all the details to that. Very good. All right, well, let's move forward. Let's get into our featured artist. This guy is near and dear to my heart because I grew up in the same town with him. And uh, he's a few years older than me, and his band was a few years ahead of my band. So we were kind of always opening for them or following them around. And his name is Abe Cunningham from the band The Deftones. Deftones were quite the influence in my hometown of Sacramento, California. And Abe was a huge part of that. He has been their drummer uh, since the very first gig I saw them play. God, I've, I've played coffee shops with the Deftones. Wow, played, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Deftones, a band that you've never heard of, but I promise was more influential than almost anyone in the in the rock scene at the time. A band called Far. So uh, and Pop, so is my band, Simon Says, Papa Roach, Far, and the Deftones, all playing a coffee shop in uh, Stockton, California. Like what kind of coffee shop? No, like a coffee shop, bro. Like no one wanted us to be there. No fans, no nothing. And the only it was like it was like a really crappy drum clinic where the only people in the crowd are the other drummers that are on the drum clinic yeah, or on yeah. the festival. It was just like that, you know, where we would just sit down and we'd 
watch Far play, and then we'd go play, and then Deftones would play, and Papa Roach would play. And actually, Papa Roach was the opening, opening, opening band for all of that stuff. Uh, they were the young guns on the on the scene. So, wow. But I I grew up watching Abe play, and I was just coming out of the high school jazz band world, so I'd never hit anything. I mean, when you're when you're a teenager, whatever you hit, you break. And then you either buy it, which you can't because I didn't have a job, or you wait until you have a birthday or Christmas for your mom to buy you a new one. Yeah. So I always hit really, really soft because I didn't want to break anything and then started doing gigs with, with Abe and seeing him play and then hitting but hitting with style, not just yeah. reckless abandon, really stylistic, bringing – whoa. Are you guys – everything good? <laughs> New that flight. plane was pretty close, bro. New flight pattern, pattern, I guess. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, Teterboro, so anyway. man. They redirected Teterboro overall. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, seeing Abe play where, like I said, it wasn't just abuse. It was with style. So that was a huge thing for me, big influence. But the one thing that really stands out to me when it comes to Abe is his ability to play hooks on the drum set he is one of the few drummers in the world where i could play a beat right now and you would know that's from white pony like i i know know, that's digital bath i know exactly what song that is he's he writes drum parts maybe better than anyone i've ever seen in the rock world i can't even think of somebody that has as many recognizable drum parts in the heavy rock world as abe cunningham how long have you known about abe i mean was it were you did you know about the deftones when you were younger because i know you were into jazz and stuff yeah i mean it was I don't really know if it was the first record or maybe the second record, but they were they kind of took over the whole, you know, like the whole the whole rock scene kind of got onto them quickly in in Maryland as well because we and we had bands like Snot and and a f- you know what was the other I there played was- with Snot dude <laughs> played with Snot and Seven Dust I played a show with Snot Seven Dust uh, and. God, who else was and, and maybe maybe trapped were the kids on the show, but yeah, okay, I, I remember all that stuff. Yeah, so that stuff was big on the East Coast too. But they they kind of brought he especially brought a little bit of like a Stuart Copeland vibe that I wasn't hearing because a lot of the a lot of the grunge drummers they kind of became ham fisted and had no yes. subtlety. And all of a sudden, I saw Abe and he was he was like dancing on the kid and still just crushing it. A lot of hi-hat stuff. I felt like he was just always yeah. improvising a little bit, which appealed to my, my jazz aesthetic. Like I felt like he never plays the same song exactly the same every time. Right. Which yeah, I yeah. thought was cool. It's kind of like the anti-rush approach. Sure. Um, yeah. I think I remember what, and also his, just his drum sound is always really thick oh, and, and clear. God. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's very few notes that he doesn't, doesn't mean to play. You yeah. know what I mean? Like everything has a purpose and it looks like he's out of control and you know, he's a hundred percent in control at the same time. He's an absolute sweetheart of a guy. And the one thing that I always respected about the Deftones growing up with them was that they cared about rocking more than anything else that's all that mattered tempo didn't matter did we hit all the right notes did chino sing on key none of that mattered all that mattered was did we rock we did a tour in europe we did a bunch of festivals with them and i just remember it was like my first time seeing them because i was used to playing coffee shops with them or, or eventually clubs and then theaters but that all of a sudden they got signed and left town and then it was another two or three years before my band got signed so i hadn't seen them play in a while and we were doing this huge festival in Europe, and there was probably I don't know forty or fifty thousand people there. It was one of those big outdoor festivals, mm-hmm. and I, in my opinion, the band 
you know, didn't play that well as far as the tempo was kind of all over the place a little bit and Chino was having a rough night singing. And their pride getting off stage because of how hard they rocked was so cool. Like, <laughs> I mean, my band, we would have had a whole talk on the bus about like, well, did you warm up your voice properly? Did you drink your tea? <laughs> like, And then like my band would have come to me and been like, you know, it was rushing quite a bit tonight. And it would have just been like this huge talk. And they were so happy with how hard they rocked. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's – you know what? That's really – and it was actually a kind of a turning point in my life because seeing that let me know that I wasn't cut out for that. Yeah. I couldn't ever just let it go. I couldn't just rock. Like every night I had to hate myself. Otherwise, it wasn't a good night. <laughs> but but I, I don't think I would ever – I knew I'd never be able to just let it go to that level of just like, well, we rocked. So who cares? You know, and – but – it was one of those things where it's like that's what makes the Deftones the Deftones. That's what makes Foo Fighters the Foo Fighters is like did we rock or did we not rock? Yeah. That's all they care about. Yes. And and then from that for them to constantly improve themselves and get better and better. And I mean Abe is playing better than he's ever played in his life right now. So I love that too when somebody's been around as long as the Deftones and had to reinvent themselves as many times as the Deftones have had to do because everyone rips them off this, the moment their album drops. And the fact that I don't wish I could go back and see Abe in 1997. Yeah. I want to see him right now. He's fantastic. And yeah. that's a great thing. You know, they are the loudest band I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, they, they take a lot of pride in that, bro. They definitely rocked on the decibels. <laughs> yes, they take a lot of pride in that. And, and part and, of it was the guy playing the sampler. Like every time he hit that low sub, it was like, <laughs> even with earplugs in, my head was shaking. Like, can they get any louder? <laughs> like, <laughs> Before it becomes illegal. <laughs> and you know that like Abe's probably not even mic'd. He's just hitting so hard he keeps up with the band. That dude's got a absolute shotgun for, for a rim shot, man. Speaking it's, of which, did you see his signature snare? Yeah, I did. I did. The uh with Tama, right? Yeah, it's got the big old holes in it. He brought the holes back. Yeah, buddy. He's 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 awesome, man. And and you know what though? I, I have a feeling that if you put one of those old $115 pearl piccolos in front of him, yeah. it would sound just like Abe. It's <laughs> yeah. just the dude just hits like a monster, man. And he so uses when that did phallum, you? That, that oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. When did you see them? Uh, it's probably been four or five years ago. It was when okay. the um, Saturday Night Wrist, is that the name of the record? Yep. It was yep. when that came out. I saw him in New York at Roseland, which doesn't exist anymore. But Clutch was the okay. opener, and then they were the headliner. It was Clutch. great. Clutch was That's amazing. Awesome. And, and That's Clutch J.P. Gaster something? Yeah, Gaster. Uh, J.P. Gaster. Okay, J.P. Gaster. That John guy's Paul. a stud. He is. He's like John Bonham reincarnated, I think. Yeah, we should definitely cover him in the future for sure. Yeah. Well, for, for all of you guys, please dig into Abe Cunningham and – if you, I'm sure you've heard Mike and I talk about transcribing, and that's you know figuring out what the drummer was playing. If you can, write it down. But really getting down to the notes that somebody played. For all of you rock guys out there, if you want to transcribe somebody, transcribe Abe Cunningham. And I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've, I'm a fan of rock. I grew up playing rock. And I just don't know that anyone cares as much about crafting a great drum groove as Abe Cunningham does. And so just start – you know, hell, start anywhere. Doesn't even matter. Just learn the two hits in uh, My Own Summer. Yeah. Just learn those two. Ten inch tom and a, and then nail the crap out of your snare drum. And and he, then he once you learn that, that in the gearing up, he talks about like that that's how he has to tune his ten inch tom forever. It has to sound exactly <laughs> of like course. that. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> it's it's just so iconic. And then the hardest thing is to count a band in and not do that. Like, well, 
two, three, do cat. And, and you can't. You can't do it. He already did it. You can't do the one-handed roll. Johnny Rab's got that. And you can't you can't do that because <laughs> Abe Cunningham's got that. All right, let's get to some candy. It is time for gear review, and this time we are going to check out some cannabis snare drums. So I did not know this until I started researching, but cannabis is a Japanese brand. They are, and they are they're so kind of polite, but they are my favorite one of my favorite sounding drums in the world. I mean, really? They, yeah, they're just they've been around for a while, right? They've been around for a pretty long while. I mean, the 70s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I have seen some people be like, oh, here's my vintage cannabis snare. And I'm like, vintage cannabis? What are you talking about? Yeah. They've and been, they've been around. 1977 is what what they claim. And they they started out like trying to replicate because, because vintage American drums are really hard to find over there. They just tried to build their own versions of it. So they researched like everything about these old drums, the, the thickness of the plies and the type of glue and all the hardware. And they just built their own versions of all this stuff. Yeah. So, so over the and they course, offer a lot of stuff, man. I mean, they have like single ply oak snares and hammer yep. bronze snares and, you know, the the black nickel over brass. They yep. have everything. Yeah. And it, every single drum of theirs I've played sounds great. I played a carbon fiber kit that was like, wow, I should probably only play carbon fiber. It sounded that good. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, they just, but you look at them, they're just, they're, they're very, you know, just classy and nothing really screaming. They just kind of almost look like generic. That's, I mean, I think that's probably their biggest downfall for perception is the fact that they do look kind of generic. Yeah. But then I then I see some people that really really care about sound and they play them and I'm like really like yep. you could play anything and you chose a cannabis okay yep. so you had the this the brass drum and then the Harvey Mason right yeah they call it a solid brass it's it's essentially like their version of the bell brass okay so super, is it heavy is all hell? super heavy with diecast hoops um, they use brass lugs so it I mean it's a it's a mammoth and it. I mean, I've played a few bell brasses from different companies, and it it's it was more versatile than some. I won't name the companies. It was, okay, it was sure. more versatile than some that I played. I mean, it had because sometimes bell brass can just kind of be thumpy, like right. just it's just a lot of power, and that's not much else, and just kind of dull sometimes. And sometimes they're hard to rein in; they just kind of just explode and they go all over the place. Yeah, this just sounded like super powerful, clean. All their drums have always been clean, like. Overtones are just perfect. Like you don't want to muffle them; they're so good. Wow! And this is the. Did it come with the black hoops and black uh, lugs? Yeah, exactly. Okay, black nickel. And what, lugs. what's the size on this? Fourteen by six and a half. Yep, yep. It's it. it's it's a bell brass, but they call it a solid brass. Um, Got it. It's amazing. It's expensive. It's a fifteen hundred dollar drum, but to to make a cast brass drum is not a cheap process. Yeah, and that's I was going to say like that's expensive. Compared to some other drums, but it's not expensive compared to bell brass snare drums. That's just what they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? I don't think you can find an old Tama for that price. They're probably up in the twenty five hundred range. Um, so yeah, that was a great rock drum. That would that would give you the Abe Cunningham sound right there. That drum. Yeah, for sure. And on the opposite side, it was a Harvey Mason signature drum, which was designed to be super dry and articulate. So I believe it was made of walnut and birch. So eight ply walnut and birch. Similar. Uh, I mean, super responsive, really clean. Overtones were just pure and, and musical, but it was definitely punchy, and it liked to be tuned tight and to kind of play more fusion-y. It was like a fusion drum, perfect fusion oh, drum. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, so like a Harvey Mason drum. Exactly. And they both recorded really, really well. 
That's cool. And yeah. I checked out some of the stuff on the Harvey Mason one, and it's it's you know it's a pet peeve of mine if if an artist doesn't play their signature products, right? Because then I know they're just selling it. But he plays that snare drum, and and it sounds it's funny. Like it's like oh, that's a it could be what is a what was that uh, group that he was with? Was it, is it Foursquare? Foreplay. Uh, they still are. Foreplay. Foursquare. <laughs> is he still the drummer in Foreplay? Yeah, and I think they're on like twenty years now. Yeah, I mean that, they've had everybody, right? They've um, God, for some reason, I can't be right about this, but I thought Phil Collins did an album with them way back in the day. No, Foreplay um, was his band from the very beginning. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, started in the But they haven't had other drummers? No, it's been he's been the drummer since okay. day one. Okay. Basically his band. All right. Are you thinking of – what are you thinking of? Well, I'm not thinking of Brand X. Um, I, I, you know, it may, maybe I'm thinking of like Spyrogyro or one of those bands yeah. that's always on the smooth jazz station, but you're kind of like – Okay, I'm in an elevator, but that drumming is dope. Yeah, right. And foreplay definitely falls into that mix sometimes, and uh, but they're they're fantastic. I mean, uh, I definitely have. Uh, Harvey Mason was one of those guys that showed up on my radar when I started studying Will Kennedy and Terry yeah. Carrington and stuff. So, but I, I did check it out today, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. I'm I'm happy he plays his signature snare. So, yeah, they're both great drums, and I I mean they make. They make so much good stuff. Like I, I told people off the record, if I if I could endorse a company, they would be on the top of my list. Of companies. really, just because wow. everything they play, they make is just you can just feel that it's honest and pure, and they're not just cool. trying to make money. They don't make sacrifices, so it's just good stuff. That's awesome. Now, are we going to hear both of these snares? Indeed. All right. Well, let's start off with the brass one, and then we'll go to the Harvey Mason one after that. All right.
you know, I always want to come back and be like, those sounded incredible. But the truth is, I don't get to hear them until I listen to the podcast on Friday morning. <laughs> but every time I'm listening to the podcast, I'm like, Mike, you should really mention how great those drums sounded. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm going to do it right now. I think you already did. <laughs> those oak drums sounded insane oh, last week. DWs. Oh yeah. my god! With your little single stroke, yeah, they were so clear, man. I mean, oh my god, that was kind of insane. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. obviously, I used to play for DW. I play for Gretsch now, so I have my own things in my head. <laughs> and I was like, uh, and they. I guess the biggest compliment I can give them, and I mean this in the best way possible, they didn't sound like DWs to me. Exactly. They, exactly. I was something. And, and, the, and the only con- the reason why I need to kind of quantify that or qualify that is because DWs have a sound. I eventually moved to Gretsch because I wanted a different sound. Well, those DWs did not have that DW sound, yeah. Um, yep. which is a great sound on its own, but it is its own thing. But those, God, those sounded good, man. That was yeah. <clears throat> very cool. Well, I'm sure those snares sounded fantastic as well. <laughs> and I'll tell you next week about how great I, – I don't want to give you too many visuals, but I usually listen to this podcast in the shower with a wireless Bluetooth speaker. So not, I'll, uh, not weird at all. Not weird not at all. Not weird at all. I'll just soap up and listen to your snare playing. All right. Moving on. Pick of the week. This time, guys, it is all about Capri Blue. Oh, Everybody knows about Capri Blue, so I'm not even going to explain it. All right. No what clue. is yours, what is Mike? It? Capri Blue, Capri pants, Capri cigarettes. What are you doing here, dog? I'm about to I'm about to lose so many man points if I ever had any, but I don't think I have any, so I'm not worried. Capri Blue is a candle company, and uh, a candle vol- company, candle, yeah, okay, yeah, scented candles. So just make sure you said that a candle yeah, company. Yes. All right, yeah, candle scented candles. Okay, okay. so uh, <laughs> when you walk into the Mike'sLessons.com facility, you will be greeted every time. With this amazing aroma, and you can't tell what it is. It's like it's not, it's not like a candle. It's not like an air freshener. It's just like God dang, this smells like a drumming day spa. What is going on here? Mm. And it is the volcano candle from the company Capri Blue. And I can tell you that it is such a big deal by the end of camp that almost every camper will go where I get them. They're like twenty five dollars a piece, and they all buy these candles to take home and put in their practice space, and it becomes the smell of practice. Yeah, that's and great. It's, it's a really cool thing. I know it sounds silly, but I mean, Capri Blue has like the Volcano Company. I think Capri Blue is the company. The Volcano is the, is the scent. But they've actually used some of our campers' pictures from their house on their Instagram feed. That's amazing. So, so yeah, so it's, it's an expensive candle, but it lasts forever. But it doesn't smell – it's so hard to explain, but it doesn't smell like a candle smell. It just smells like inspiration and happiness. So uh, <laughs> I, know, I know I've lost every man point possible. But I promise you, Mike, when you come here next time and you walk in, you're like, hey, can I – is there a way that I could get that smell in my house? Oh, it's man. it's just beautiful. So take that. <laughs> I don't care. Send in your emails and dog me out. You think <laughs> I haven't seen that? You think I haven't visited the forums that ruin my life? I know what you've got to say about my Capri Blue. <laughs> I, I completely lost my train of thought, man. Why would you even need a train of thought? I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm so ready to defend the volcano candle right now. But I promise. Hey, you know what, F- listeners that have been to drum camp, can you please just r- write on Modern Drummer's wall or something to let them know how important this candle is to camp? Yeah, we want to see all God. your candle pictures, please. <laughs> all right, moving on. What is your What's your pick of the week, stud? <clears throat> oh man. I- I really had a question for you, and I completely forgot what it was. I'm telling you. 
The, the power of the, uh, of the volcano candle. You know what? I do actually. I do burn sage in my studio quite often. It just kind of sets a certain tone, a certain mood. So I'm not against there you go. it. But there you go, man. I don't know what a ca- I don't know what a Capri Sun candle smells like. Uh, slow <laughs> down. <laughs> Take your little East Coast bias out of this. Sorry that your day's cold <laughs> and my back still hurts. God, God I'm going to take it all out on Johnston. <laughs> all right, what's your pick of the week? Okay, so I, I hate suggesting Spotify anything, but okay. I have a you know every night I'm kind of just looking for new music. And they, they just have a good they have a bunch of good playlists. So I was searching for jazz and just some stuff that I didn't know I wasn't familiar with. And I found that there's actually a playlist called Blue Notes Most Sampled. Okay. So in that playlist it's a lot of like soul jazz. And soul jazz is kind of like a subgenre that I think is really underappreciated because it's it's not quite funk and it's definitely not quite jazz. Hey, what's up? Who Sorry that? my dog's here. <laughs> What's he saying? Dude. Is he saying light a candle? Dude, he is. He's like, he's like, Dad, the camp candle just fell over. Your, your place is burning down. <laughs> All right, let's stay on track. Blue Notes most sampled. Come on now. Yeah, it's a playlist that has a bunch of soul jazz stuff. So, and and it's it's great because it's kind of funky. It's kind of jazzy. It's a great entryway if if straight ahead jazz is just too foreign for you. Right. This is a good entryway because it's it's jazz instrumentation. So it's it's acoustic music. You know, the drums are kind of tight and and boomy but they're playing like kind of soul beats a lot of boogaloo and and funk stuff right. so there's some stuff in there that's kind of 70s kind of like corny funk stuff but the stuff okay. is from the 60s so in that playlist there's some lou donaldson tracks that has uh, uh leo morris who actually is idris muhammad before he became muslim Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. if you look up anything with Leo Morris or with uh, Idris Muhammad, it's going to be groovy as hell, but it's also going to have a strong tie to like traditional jazz. So that's it. It's the Blue Note's most sampled. There's a record called Blue Note Breakbeats. So it's all stuff that like hip-hop artists have sampled, but you can hear it in its original form. Oh, that's really cool, man. So there's a Grant, awesome. a Grant Green record called uh, Green is Beautiful. That's got Idris Muhammad and then the... The Lou Donaldson record, Turtle Walk. Actually, that's not the name of the record. The name of the record is Hot Dog. That's got Hot Dog. That's got Leo Morris, which is Idris Muhammad. Super funky. I mean, he is he's he's pretty amazing and certainly underappreciated in most circles. So, for people that aren't familiar with Spotify, if they were just going to kind of sign up today or whatever, or get a, or get a free account, whatever. How do you do? You, is there literally a search bar? I actually don't use Spotify, so is there a search bar that you there just is. type in Blue Notes most sampled? Yep. If you do that, it'll bring it up. And I okay. found it because they have categories. So there's like a jazz category, and then within okay. the category, there's a ton of playlists. So you can just scroll down and, and you'll find it. Uh, awesome, man! I think I searched well, for Blue Note, and it brought up like a dozen different playlists. So pretty much, you light your volcano candle. You put on Blue Notes Most Sampled Playlist, and you just sit back and listen to the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike, and all is good. (laughs) And you're like, man, I wonder if Johnston's soaping up in the shower listening to this right now. (laughs) And 90% of our listeners just threw up in their mouth. All right. (laughs) Nice wrap up. (laughs) Let's just wrap it up. It's not going to get any better from here. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for (laughs) listening. What's that? Please review the show on iTunes. Uh, Yeah, you can review this and... uh, to say I love everything except for 
Johnston. Okay. Oh, man. Episode 36 has been brought to you by Mike and I because we don't have any sponsors. And uh, we just want you to know how much we appreciate you guys listening, sending in your questions. You can always send in your questions at info at moderndrummer.com. Sweet. So send your questions there. We will do our best to get to them. And then, yeah, we got to remind each other uh, when we get off of this to do the two microphone thing uh, this week. That'll be a lot of fun. Yep. On it. Sounds fantastic. All right, buddy. Well, I will see you next week. Yeah. Later.